I believe it was probably in the 70s that the phrase born again became an incredibly popular term among evangelicals in America. Christians were commonly identifying themselves as born-again Christians. In evangelism, we would go out and we would ask people, have you been born again? And it was very, very common for pastors to preach sermons telling people, you must be born again. It's become so popular, as a matter of fact, that I think you could argue it's unfortunately become almost a bit of a cliché. We don't even think much about it when we hear it being born again. In, in some circles in America, born again has become a term of derision. Describing people as those born again Christians, meaning they are those annoying fundamentalist evangelicals. But we're going to find out today that being born again, talking about being born again is not some cultural cliche, but is actually a very fundamental Christian truth of utmost importance that traces back not to 1970s America, but all the way to first century Jerusalem, to the lips of Jesus Christ himself. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 3, please? John chapter 3. And hopefully you haven't made yourselves too comfortable because I invite you to stand to show reverence for the word of God when you have found John chapter 3. We are going to be reading and preaching through verse 12 this morning. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, thus saith the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And this Pharisee has obviously seen the miracles of Christ, which testify and prove that Jesus is a true prophet of God. We know he is much more than that, but Nicodemus does not know that yet. Nicodemus, however, just knows that clearly this guy is a legitimate prophet. And so because of that, this ruler of Israel, this Pharisee, this great scholar and teacher, approaches Jesus at night, and he wants to learn something more about him. The fact that it's at night seems to be important because I don't know why else John would tell us the timing if it didn't matter to him, but he doesn't tell us exactly why it's important. Uh, The most common suspicion is that Nicodemus was uh, trying to hide the fact that he was seeing Jesus. And I think that's a 
I think that's a reasonable inference. Um, perhaps he was embarrassed because he's supposed to be the teacher. He's supposed to be the teacher of Israel, and yet he's asking some random rabbi from Nazareth um, about the faith. So maybe he's embarrassed, or maybe Jesus' reputation among the Pharisees is already so bad that he doesn't want his colleagues to know about it. Um, Whatever his reasons were, I think the reason John includes it is because there's going to be a theme established through the rest of John of light and darkness. And darkness is going to represent ignorance and sin. Light is going to represent righteousness and illumination. So I think whatever Nicodemus' purpose is, John is showing us this to symbolize where he's at. He's in the dark. Hopefully soon, and we will actually learn by the end of the book of John, that he will eventually come into the light. But right now, Nicodemus' timing is a poetic reflection of where he's at. He, he obviously has some faith in Christ, some respect for Christ, but he is still not illumined. He is still in the dark. And so he comes to Jesus, and, and the text doesn't even tell us explicitly what he came for. Uh, we don't know what question he, he asked of Jesus, what he was looking to get out of this conversation. Uh, but all we do know is that whatever the conversation was, Jesus gets straight to the heart of the matter. All we learn from this conversation is that Jesus emphasizes to Nicodemus about the starting point of true discipleship. The first thing that must happen before anyone is to see the kingdom of God. And that was the whole purpose of the Pharisees was to teach people about the kingdom of God, how to enter in to the kingdom of God. Now, you might be wondering, well, how do we understand the kingdom of God? It's admittedly a pretty broad category in Scripture. Typically, uh, when we say the word kingdom of God, most people think of heaven. And that's true, but it's just a little incomplete. Um, Absolutely, the, the full culmination of the kingdom of God is the resurrection state. That's when the kingdom of God is fully manifested. But the Bible is very clear throughout its pages that the kingdom of God is not just something we're waiting for in the near distant future, but that it's actually already here. Um, Jesus describes it, compares it to a mustard seed. It's planted and it slowly grows until one day it's this enormous tree. And so the kingdom of God is not just something we're awaiting for. It's full blooming, we are. But it's, it's already here. Christ already brought it. You can already, you can enter into the kingdom of God today. It's something you can see today. But for our purposes, without getting into a big discussion of of all the nuances of the kingdom of God, for our purposes, I think it's safe to assume that when Jesus is talking about seeing the kingdom of God, he's talking about being saved. He's talking about becoming a citizen of the Lord Jesus Christ, coming into God's church, into God's family, underneath God's rule. He's talking about being saved and entering into resurrection life. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that if you want to be saved... If you want eternal life, you must be born again. And this confuses Nicodemus. Now, to be fair to him, I don't think Nicodemus' question is totally sincere. Right? He asks him, how, how is an old man born again? Do I have to crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again? I don't think, I don't think Nicodemus sincerely thought that's what Jesus was saying. But it, it's just a common way for us to express um, confusion. You know, it's like sometimes Layla might shout something. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't hear her right. And I'll say, what do you mean by that? I know that's not what she said. I'm just trying to tell her I, I didn't understand what she said. So don't, don't think Nicodemus was literally thinking Jesus was telling him you need to crawl into your mother's womb and come back out again. But he's just expressing his confusion. What do you mean by being born again? What on earth does that mean? How is a person born again? And Jesus responds by doubling down. 
he restates what he said, but this time he changes the language up a little bit. And this time he tells him he must be born of spirit and water. Look at verse 5 with me. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There are a number of interpretations of this verse. (coughs) Excuse me. Without a doubt, the overwhelming majority, the, the most popular interpretation throughout the history of the church, is that this is a reference to Christian baptism. That is, in other words, Jesus is teaching Nicodemus that to be born again is to be born of the Spirit, and this only takes place in the waters of Christian baptism. And this is why, by the way, the church for so long has held to the idea that baptism is altogether necessary for salvation. Because after all, Jesus says you cannot see the kingdom unless you have been born of water, a.k.a. unless you have been baptized. However, although I don't typically like to do this, I am going to go against the history. I don't think that this verse is a reference to baptism. And I want to give you a number of reasons why I think that it's, that's the wrong interpretation. First and foremost, uh, just to get this out of the way, it's important to know that the word baptism is not in the text. It doesn't necessarily mean the concept isn't there, but it's at least helpful to know that Jesus could have used the word baptism and he didn't. I think we have to be careful. Um, I think ancient theologians had a tendency to always assume anytime the Bible's talking about water, it's always talking about baptism. So we have to be careful and just not assuming if there's water here, it's got to be baptism. Jesus mentions water, but he doesn't technically say anything about baptism. Uh, but more to the, to the more important points, here, uh, tying the, the being born of the Spirit to the waters of baptism tying these things together uh, actually seems to contradict the very thing that Jesus says about being born again or being reborn. And what what do I mean by that? Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Right? So Jesus is very clear that it's the Holy Spirit who makes us born again. And he compares the Spirit to the wind. You can see the effects of the wind, but you can't predict it. And more importantly, you can't command it. You don't tell the wind where to go when the wind has to work. The wind works on its own, and Jesus says, so does the Spirit. The Spirit comes and goes as He pleases. The Spirit works on His own initiative, and He cannot be boxed in by us, but that is exactly what we do when we say this text must be about baptism. We say the Spirit must work in this sacrament. You cannot be reborn because He only works in the waters of baptism. He doesn't get to come and go as He pleases. He must come when we baptize. We're limiting him to this one sacrament, to this one ceremony, when I think Jesus' point is rebirth is his choice. It's his decision. He comes and goes as he pleases. We don't get to tell him, no, you must rebirth just child. I just baptized him. It is the work of the Spirit. We ought not to limit him. He is unpredictable and cannot be controlled or commanded by us. Uh, another reason why I don't want, think we should read this as baptism, I think a really strong reason, is that Jesus expected Nicodemus to be in total understanding of everything he said up to this point. Jesus does not think he's teaching Nicodemus anything new. He, 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 he derides him for not having already known whatever it is he's saying. Look at verse 10. After Nicodemus asks him, 
He expresses confusion twice. What does this mean? How can this be? Jesus says in verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Right? Jesus is saying, You're a teacher of Israel. You are well acquainted with the Old Testament. You've been teaching from the Old Testament for your entire adult life. You know the Old Testament. How do you not know what I'm saying? It's a basic Old Testament truth. This is, this is Judaism 101 right now. The reason I think that that contradicts the baptism reading is because baptism doesn't even exist yet. <laughs> How is, why is Jesus deriding Nicodemus for not being a prophet and seeing into the future that one day before Christ's ascension, he's going to institute a Trinitarian baptism wherein the Spirit regenerates us? He's not rebuking Nicodemus for not knowing something that doesn't even exist yet. He's rebuking Nicodemus for not knowing a truth that's existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is something Nicodemus should already know. Christian baptism is not something he would already know. It's a brand new teaching that doesn't exist for another few years. So again, I think that's a reason that Christian baptism doesn't fit the bill. And, and related to that, I think the obvious flow of the text is Jesus is telling Nicodemus that this is something that can happen to him right now. You can be born again right now. You can enter into the kingdom of God right now. As a matter of fact, he's telling him, you need to do this pronto, ASAP. If this only happens in Christian baptism, then he's really telling Nicodemus, in a few years, then you will need to be born again. No, he's telling him, whatever I'm talking about is something in the Old Testament that you should already be teaching and you should have already done it. You should have already been born again and you need to write this minute. Fourthly and last reason why I'm giving why I, I don't think we should read baptism in this text is that I think it's, it's contrary not just to the context of our passage, but I'm going to go so far and say it's contrary to the entire book of John. What I mean by that is baptism not only comes up never explicitly in this conversation. Baptism doesn't come up again in the book of John for the rest of its chapters. It never comes back up in John's gospel. As a matter of fact, John's gospel is the only gospel that doesn't mention the sacraments at all. He does not include the Great Commission where we are commanded to go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And he even leaves out the institution of the Lord's Supper, something the synoptics all contain. The point is, is John just seems utterly uninterested in Christian sacraments. I'm not saying he doesn't like them. I'm not saying he doesn't think they're important. I'm not saying he disagrees with the other apostles about it. But whatever the intentions of his book were, when John wrote it, he just clearly doesn't seem to have the intentions of teaching us very much about the sacraments. He left out the very institution of them in his narrative. I just think we're imposing something about John. He must be talking about baptism here when he doesn't talk about baptism for almost his entire book, unless you count John the Baptist baptism. But we learn in the book of Acts that that's a different baptism from Christian baptism. In the book of Acts, if you were baptized with John's baptism, the apostles would say, no, you need to get baptized again. It was a different baptism. Christian baptism is not in the book of John. The Lord's Supper is not in the book of John. So I, I think it's wrong for us to cram it into this verse. But more important than the context of the whole book is the context of our passage. And again, baptism just doesn't show up in it. I would make the argument that if baptism was the means where we have to be regenerated, then it not only would show up clearly, but it would show up after verse 9. And here's what I mean by that. Look at what Nicodemus asks in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Now, I don't know how your Bible translates that, but one of the things I, I found out in my studies is that 
Although Nicodemus is expressing disapproval. He is, he is disgruntled right now. Um, but his question is not so much, he's not just like rhetorically saying like, how, how is this possible? He's, he's literally asking, how does this happen? How can this be? How, how can this happen? How can this come about? How can someone be reborn? What, what has to take place? And so what we're going to see next week is Jesus' answer. Next week, Jesus, well, all, all Jesus does in our passage today is rebuke him. <laughs> but next week, he's going to answer the question. He's going to tell him how this takes place, how you can be reborn. And he's only going to talk about faith in Jesus Christ. He's not going to talk about baptism. Faith is how we're reborn. Believing in Jesus is how we are reborn. So I just think that it goes against the context of the passage and the book to, to impose the sacrament over the word water. So what is the text about then? Well, I think that this verse is in harmony with every other verse. Every single verse after Nicodemus' question is ultimately telling us about our need for regeneration. Right? So let's go back to verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Every single verse is re-emphasizing Jesus' teaching that we must be born again. And if you want the fancy theological term for born again, the word is regeneration. They mean the same thing. To generate means to, uh, to birth. Regeneration is rebirth. It's the same thing. So if you ever see the word regeneration, it's talking about being born again. And this entire passage is all about that idea that we have to become new creatures in order to see the kingdom of God. That we have to be remade as entirely new people if we would ever dare to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. And I submit to you, uh, this would have been a very important message, especially for Nicodemus to hear. He, as a Jewish Pharisee, how would Nicodemus answer the question, how does one see the kingdom of God? From what we know about the Pharisees, you know what his answer would be? Obey the law. Obey the law. Keep the law of God. But you see, Jesus believes in a doctrine called total depravity. Jesus understands that the human nature is so lacking in righteousness after the fall, and it has become so corrupt that the message for anyone who would seek to be saved goes far beyond mere behavior modification. It goes far beyond just keeping the law. Jesus is saying you need to die and resurrect. He's not just looking for an alteration in your behavior. You need to put yourself to death and come back as something altogether new. You need a total transformation, a total restart. It's like you've never been born. You need to be born again. Jesus is calling for something far more radical than Nicodemus' simple obey the law. We need total transformation. Nicodemus is putting all of his hope in two things. I'm Jewish. Right? I'm circumcised. I'm of the line of Abraham. I'm of the promised people. And I keep the law. And Jesus says, being Jewish doesn't get you into the kingdom of God. Trying your hardest to obey the law will never get you into the kingdom of God. You need to be born again. And Jesus knows that the only way to properly communicate the rebirth to this Pharisee, Pharisee is to give total credit to the author of regeneration, who is the Holy Spirit. Right? If Jesus doesn't bring the Holy Spirit into this conversation, then Nicodemus might think that we have the power to regenerate ourselves. Right? If I just tell someone you must be born again, 
And that's all I say. If, especially if you're like Nicodemus or if you're like someone in our culture, you might hear that as a message as me essentially telling you, you need to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Right? You need to make yourself reborn. You need to rebirth yourself. But that is not at all what Jesus is saying when he talks about being born again. We do not have the power in our dead, fallen state to regenerate ourselves. In fact, I, 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 I like it when theologians put it this way. You have about as much to do with your second birth as you did with your first. How much did you contribute to your first birth? That's what you contribute to your second one. That's the very point. That's why Jesus uses this phrase, born again. You don't birth yourself. You can't do that. It has to be something outside of you causing this upon you. It's not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's being transformed by a foreign power. And that's why Jesus brings up the Spirit. Look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus right here is basically applying to the spiritual realm a, a basic scientific truth that everyone probably in here intuitively knows. And that is that creatures reproduce after their own kind. Humans give birth to humans. Dogs give birth to dogs. Right? You're never going to see an elephant give birth to a tiger. We reproduce after our own kind. And so here's the point that Jesus is making. If our, if our parents are fallen, fleshly creatures, then what is going to be born from them? Spiritual life? Fallen, fleshly creatures. All that the flesh can give you is flesh. All that sin can reproduce in you is sin. So if you're in the flesh, if you're in sin, how can you produce spiritual life? That's like an elephant giving birth to a tiger. Flesh will give birth to flesh. So if you need new spiritual life, you need a spirit to come upon you. Only spirit gives birth to spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. So he's trying to tell Nicodemus to be born again. You're not going to do that yourself. You need the Holy Spirit to do that in you. You need the Holy Spirit to come and give spiritual life where there is only death. Death cannot give birth to life. Life gives birth to life. And so, by the, so, so now that we've sort of clarified what being born again is, it's being made a new creature by the power of the Spirit, it helps us, we can go back to this controversial verse now and see what exactly are we supposed to see in verse 5 when Jesus throws in this phrase, water. What does it mean? What is Jesus trying to tell us when he says that we must be born of water and born of spirit? Well, one thing you need to know is that um, the, the English doesn't make this very clear. But in the Greek, it's crystal clear that this is the same thing. Jesus is not talking about two births here. Birth number one, born of water. Birth number two, born of spirit. He is, the, the second part is actually just redefining or what they call emphasizing the first. In other words, being born of water is the exact same thing as being born of the spirit. They're the exact same thing. What Jesus does is he begins with a metaphor and then he immediately explains his own metaphor. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be born of water. The Holy Spirit is the water. Regeneration is the washing. And the reason Jesus would use this metaphor is because he's trying to help us understand what exactly the Holy Spirit does in regeneration. 
The Holy Spirit does to your soul what water does to physical things. And what does water do to physical things? It does two things. The first and most obvious thing is that it cleanses. Right? When you're dirty, you need to be washed. Imperfections, dirt, impurity is washed away by water. It makes us clean. So that means that regeneration, rebirth, it includes the forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit applies the blood of Christ to you and your sins are washed away. He cleanses you. He's water. He is washing you from your sins. But water does something else. We don't often think about this, but water revitalizes. Water, in a sense, brings life to the dead. Think about a desert. A desert is a great symbol of death. This is why in the book of Ezekiel, he talks about the valley of dry bones, dryness, desert. Where there's no water, there is no life. When astronauts, when we send telescopes out in outer space looking for other you know, planets that we can live on, one of the first things we're looking for is water. If the planet has no water, you're done. There's no life without water. And that's why a desert is a symbol of death. There's no water there. It's dry and hostile and, and sandy. And it's very difficult for organisms to survive in a desert. But if enough water is added to that desert, it becomes a rainforest. It becomes a rainforest. Water brings life to the desert. It makes life grow. It revitalizes and so that's what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit is the rainwater pouring on the desert of your soul. The Holy Spirit is revitalizing, bringing life to your dead souls. So re regeneration then is not just the forgiveness of sins. It's also the transformation of the person. You're not just legally getting your sins forgiven. You are being made new. You are being transformed into a whole different person. You are being born of water, cleanliness, and revitalization. And this is the message that is crystal clear in the Old Testament, by the way. All throughout the Old Testament is references to forgiveness and transformation being associated with the water of the Holy Spirit. Let me just show you the most popular one, though there are numerous ones. This is from Ezekiel 36, the chapter right before the famous Valley of Dry Bones, where God brings life to a desert full of bones. And Ezekiel prophesies this, speaking from the Lord, that I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, there's forgiveness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And, so we have a second element now. What else does this clean water do? It cleanses us and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's regeneration. That's rebirth. Receiving the spirit and getting a new heart, walking in holiness, being cleansed from your sins, being cleansed from your idols. The Spirit is the clean water. He's the water. To be born of water is to be born of a spirit, of the Spirit, to be washed pure and receive a new heart, both forgiveness and renewal. That's what Jesus is showing us in verse 5. And by the way, this isn't some 
totally foreign way of talking. John the Baptist spoke the same way in the Gospel of Matthew. John the Baptist tells the people, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Right? So according to John, you have two baptisms. You have to be baptized with the Spirit and you have to be baptized with fire, right? These are two different baptisms, right? Is, is John trying to teach us about a third very painful sacrament? Is he trying to tell us that in order to receive the Spirit, we have to be baptized in literal fire? It's part of our church budget for remodeling the sanctuary. Do we need to invest in a flamethrower so that we can just roast all of our new converts? I'm obviously being silly. You don't have to be baptized with literal fire. The fire is explaining the baptism of the Spirit. Because, believe it or not, on a metaphorical level, fire actually operates just like water. It, it purifies. If you have precious metals, but they're covered in dross, you know what you do? You burn them. And it purifies all of its impurities. But what we also know about precious metals and stones is that after they go through this purification process, they not only look different, but they're stronger. Fire purifies and strengthens the same concept of John the Baptist is saying, you're going to receive the Spirit, and you can think of it as like being baptized with fire. He's going to remove your impurities and strengthen you and make you new. And Jesus is doing the exact same thing. You're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What is that like? It's like being born of water. It's like having your soul cleansed and, re and your desert revitalized. Fire is not a sacrament in Matthew 3. And in John 3, water is not a sacrament. It is the Spirit. The fire and the water is a metaphoric description of what the Holy Spirit does when He fills us and makes us reborn. And so in short, if you're looking for like a main idea, Jesus is not trying to tell Nicodemus about the necessity of baptism. He is telling Nicodemus and every one of us about the necessity of being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So here's a really easy sermon thesis. If you leave this church today and your neighbors ask you, hey, what'd you learn at church today? You can, like John the Baptist, you can stand up on a box if you want. You can tell them you must be born again. That's the message. You must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. You must be transformed and made into a new creature. And, and one of the things I love about this metaphor of being born again is that when we understand that salvation is not just a title change, but an, an actual total transformation, a lot of other things fall into place. This really helps us make applications of a lot of other things that we know about Christianity, but are sometimes easy to forget or hard to make sense of. Let, let me give you just, by the way, some applications of the doctrine of being born again. One of them is that being born again teaches us the very personal element of the Christian faith. Part of why the born-again craze happened in America was because there was a time where America became so nominal in her Christianity that people were putting all of their trust in their associations, right? It, we became a, 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 a nation of nominal Christianity where whatever church I attended was what I was putting all my, all my hope in. Yeah, I'm saved. I'm a Catholic. I'm saved. I'm a Catholic. Yeah, I'm saved. I'm a Methodist. Yeah, I'm saved. I'm, I'm part of the Presbyterian Church. But those things don't actually save you. Going to the right church doesn't save you. Joining the right denomination doesn't save you. 
You need a personal transformation. You need more than just a good association. Those are good. I do want to be associated with whatever church is most pure and most true. That's going to church is good. Joining the right church is good. But what you need to see the kingdom of God is not the right church. You need to be born again. So what we're recognizing is, yes, there is a very corporate element to Christianity. And we don't want to lose that in this church. We emphasize it a lot in this church. But we don't want to focus so much on the corporate that we lose the individual. That you are not going to stand in front of God when you die on behalf of Redeemer Christian Fellowship. Or a better way to say it is Redeemer Christian Fellowship is not going to stand in your place on Judgment Day. You will stand before God yourself. Your believing spouse won't save you. Your membership card won't save you. You need personal eternal life. You need to be changed and transformed by the work of the Spirit. So we are reminded that Christianity, while it is a corporate religion, Christ came to save a church, there's a very real individual element. We will stand before God individually. We must be born again. Nicodemus wasn't being saved by his circumcision. He wasn't being saved by being a descendant of Abraham. He needed to be born again. And so Jesus' message is very much a wake-up call to nominal Christians. Every person needs a personal Savior. Every Christian needs to be born again. It also helps us, the the doctrine of regeneration, it helps us, uh, this is one of my favorite ones, maybe more academic, but I think it's still really helpful in your personal life. It helps us rightly place the role of works in the Christian religion. Right? Where, Where do good works fall into our faith? The message of regeneration helps us to understand this. And here's why. Because on the one hand, the Bible is very clear that works cannot merit salvation. You cannot earn your salvation by being a good person. You can't obey the law yourself into heaven. The Bible says over and over again that we are justified by faith and not by works of the law. Regeneration itself is something you cannot earn, you cannot merit, you cannot purchase regeneration with good behavior. Salvation is very clearly, unequivocally presented in Scripture as apart from works. It is not by works. And so Christians will believe that, glory to God. But then they'll be confused as they read through their Bibles and they'll come upon passages which speak of Judgment Day as being according to works. Take, for example, Romans chapter 2. Speaking of God, He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. How do we make sense of this? How is it that we can be judged by works even though we are under grace? How is judgment based on works when salvation is based on grace? Well, the answer is that we can be judged by works not because the works themselves are meriting eternal life, but because these are the signs that we do or don't have eternal life. Right, for example, take an EMT who... shows up to a crime scene and approaches a, a body on the ground. They will pronounce this person dead and send them to the coroner if they show no signs of life. 
If they are not breathing, if they're not moving, if they have no pulse, if they're cold to the touch, they will pronounce him dead. And so similarly, judgment day is, is the day that God checks for a pulse. If we have been born again, if we truly have eternal life, if we have been saved by grace through faith apart from works, if we truly are new creatures, then you ought to expect to see signs of life. And so our works, our lives, are the, become the effects of our eternal life. They become the signs that we have been saved. So Jesus is not giving heaven as a gift, a reward for these works, but he's saying this person has been born again. This person has eternal life. Go into heaven. And then the accuser comes by and says, how do you know that they're not spiritually dead? And Jesus says, because I found a pulse. Because they're moving. They're breathing. You are judged by works because they are a proxy. They are a reflection of your saving faith. They are signs of life. So you cannot merit salvation. But your good works should be the evidence and the proof that you are saved. In other words, to use Jesus' metaphor, if the, if the tree is not moving, I don't believe the wind has blown in it. The wind's... He says you, we can't control the spirit, but we can see its effects. And so this is a wake-up call to nominal Christians. Do you see the effects of the spirit in your life? Do you see gradual change? Do you see yourselves walking and pursuing holiness with the church? These are signs that the spirit has moved upon you. And these are the things that God uses at Judgment Day. Uh, our third and final, though there's more, the third and final one, just because it's so related, another thing that the doctrine of regeneration helps us with in our Christian life is it helps us to be totally reliant upon the grace of God. It helps us to totally rely on the grace of God. I get that from verse 7. Look at verse 7 in the text with me. Back in John. Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What is Jesus teaching us here? He's teaching us that regeneration is the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. Like the wind, he comes and goes as he pleases. And this means that our regeneration was not merited. We didn't earn it. It is a gracious act of the Spirit upon us. It is totally and completely of grace. You don't get to turn to your non-Christian neighbor and say, man, I must be a really good person. The Holy Spirit changed me. If you were a really good person, you wouldn't have needed change. You don't earn regeneration. You don't merit regeneration. Regeneration is the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You are saved 100% because of grace. If there is even a speckle in your mind that you have contributed to the grace of your salvation, you need to purge it right away. God saved you apart from you. He saved you because of His mercy, because of His kindness, because of His goodness. It was not based on anything you had done. Regeneration reminds us to be reliant upon the grace of God. Why am I here today? Because the Holy Spirit has been good to me. That's why I'm here today. Because God has been merciful to me. That is salvation. And when we understand being born again, we will see it as the gracious work of God, not the achievement of our works. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says about it. Let's end with this text. We'll read this text and then we'll sing. Turn, if you will, to Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For 
we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and in envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 